In our last episode, we discussed the uh, single integrated operational plan, the devastating attack planned by Strategic Air Command on not only the Soviet Union, but also, of course, her allies. Um, it was pretty dark. I realized that, but that was done by uh, intention. I, uh, I think there is a reluctance of people to want to even think about potential threats that could really, and I, I mean actually, destroy humanity and do so without our control or say-so as individuals. It sort of takes away maybe a sense of agency. Uh, it's a lot more palatable to think about uh, climate change, which I guess that takes place over you know, decades or centuries, or uh, maybe a meteor, which, you know, you're, you're looking at something that might be every, you know, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 million years, or um, beating ourselves up over uh, all the innumerable social inequities that happen every day, and, and maybe you do have some sort of a say in that. Uh, I'm not saying any of that's wrong, but I would like to make the point that Everyone should think about this specific issue long and hard for at least a day or two before moving on. Um, a, a nuclear war, um, and again, it's it's not like a, a, a world-ending U.S.-Soviet giant 10,000 megaton exchange or something, but a nuclear war, even a small one, could happen at any moment. Um, most likely it will happen when leaders have stopped taking its threat seriously. You have to realize that the, the, I mean, the last person that's actually seen one of these things go off will die in, in my lifetime. Um, you know, unless there's some other, you know, atmospheric test, <laughs> which I not sure it could happen i mean you know who knows maybe uh kim jong-un is uh gonna do us the favor uh maybe you could look at it this way uh maybe when you move into a house and you discover the walls are packed with dynamite when you, when you first discover that you get super careful uh you make sure the wiring is up to code uh, you would definitely be extraordinarily careful while cooking or uh, putting putting out candles. Uh, but what happens when when you've lived in that house for twenty, thirty, or forty years peacefully without incident? Uh, what happens when your kids grow up there? Maybe there are new owners. Uh, would they take the threat as seriously as you did? Even 70 or 80 years on, uh, it still just takes one spark. But then that's so easy to forget when there's so many other things going on in life that, of course, seem so much more important. Um, 
let me put it this way. Uh, when I was a kid, the Cold War was just coming to an end, and uh, people still gave a lot of thought to the existential threat that these weapon systems posed. Uh, it wasn't anything like the 50s or 60s. I mean, I, I, I wasn't there for that, but, you know, uh, people still thought about it. Uh, now, however, it's it's been largely forgotten, um, especially by anybody who wasn't alive at that time. Uh, but think about it this way. Uh, if the level of destruction that I've been describing... Um, in that almost instantaneous period of time was possible in 1960, what do you think could happen today? Can you name a single weapon system or even technology that hasn't improved dramatically since 1960? I mean, I'm not saying to dig a hole in your backyard and, and buy all the assault weapons in the store, but really, I mean... Sooner or later, a generation of people who have lost interest in this issue will elect a generation of leaders that don't particularly care, and someone may miscalculate, and mistakes will be made. And unless we continually practice extreme care, there will be an errant spark. I made the point before, but I would like to reiterate it. Uh, the people who designed this plan, the uh, single integrated operational plan, were not sociopaths, although at times uh, they certainly come off that way. Uh, these men, they had seen war, uh, not just the horrors, but also the, the chaos and confusion of what it was like to launch an actual attack, or more importantly, what it was like to find oneself under attack. War is not a board game. Uh, it isn't chess, although many people sort of fancy it to be so. Um, in reality, it's probably more like a, a poker game. Or, uh, interestingly enough, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was actually a master bridge player. Uh, bridge is... Uh, I haven't played it myself, but it, it's a game where... Not only do you have to kind of guess what cards your opponent has, you know, what his strategy is going to be, but also you have a partner. But you, you can't really communicate with your partner. So there's a lot of kind of planning and dealing with uncertainty that goes into playing that kind of a game. But, I mean, chess, you can see every piece on the board. And that's just not something that exists in... A warfare situation. Uh, you have to do a lot of guessing. You have to guess, you know, what not only what your enemy wants to do, but what what how, what what kind of force they have at their command. Um, the uh, famous 19th century German general uh, Helmut von Moltke once said that no plan of battle survives contact with the enemy. These guys. Um, you know, uh, uh, Curtis LeMay and, and Thomas Power are going to get a lot of flack for their willingness to demolish enemy civilians. But then, uh, I mean, what if just one enemy warhead or bomb were to land on an American city? You know, what if your desire for mercy cost you everyone living in a, a city like New York or Chicago or Los Angeles? 
Are you going to turn around and say, well, I wasn't entirely sure that that uh, missile base outside of Beijing was going to launch that warhead or, you know, any other city? Um, I mean, how, how would you answer if, 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 you know, the 10 million people died in your country because, you know, you just wanted to do the right thing? Um, Maybe the stakes are so high, you, you just can't afford to take that risk. I mean, you know, if you were in that position and that happened, could you live with yourself? Um, you want to dismiss these guys out of hand, but when you think about it, if the chips were down, uh, wouldn't you want men with, I guess, nerves like that? Um, you know, you kind of wonder uh, if the U.S. armed forces of today would even be able to execute something as brutal as the psyop i mean just look up some of the recent uh, recruitment videos like they're uh <laughs> they're they're funny um you know the armed forces nowadays seem more like a journey of sort of self-discovery than a tool by which uh, dangers to national security can be sort of eliminated or then again that's neither here nor there um <clears throat> so let's go back to the day's immediately following the defeat of uh, Nazi Germany in Europe. Uh, of course, you know, this is the end of World War II, the, the most brutal war in the history of mankind, um, certainly in modern times. After all this death and destruction and devastation, one would think that it would be time for a nice respite. Uh, the continent of Europe was exhausted. Uh, Certainly, the tension would be released, right? Uh, well, not quite. Uh, just beneath all of the jubilation for you know, finally defeating, you know, the uh, the Nazi Germans and the uh, Italian fascists, the the ground is shifting. Uh, something new, something sinister is is, is taking shape. Even now, uh, new alliances are forming. New battles are being planned, and a new weapon is being devised and just about tested that will change the rules of warfare forever. I'm your host, Stephen Eck, and this is Savage Continent. in May 1945 was a devastated place. Uh, even the conquerors couldn't help but look on in sheer bewilderment. Uh, there is a great article from um, some of the first reporters to uh, enter Germany in the uh, aftermath of its defeat. Um, this is a quote from uh, 
an article of Life magazine from uh, May 1945. Quote, The collapse of the Nazi empire is a fantastic show. Germany is a chaos. It is a country of crushed cities, of pomposities trampled on the ground, of frightened people, and also glad people, of horrors beyond imagination. Through the ruins of great cities move the motley crowds that Europe has seen since the Crusades. The greatest number are Germans. You can tell the Germans by their manner. They are stunned and tired and beaten and frightened. They start when spoken to. They smile timidly, ingratiatingly, and beg information most humbly. Even a German in the greatest of distress does not stride boldly up to any American to ask for help or directions. He plucks your sleeve softly. In the ruins of the Germans stand, cooking their meals in an open hearth, improvised brick ovens, readying the food to take below to the innumerable caves and cellars that they have been living in so long. Many of them have no electric light or running water for a long, long time. They live like people will, perhaps, when ice returns over the earth huddled together for warmth and comfort against loneliness, with someone outside the night guarding the hole that leads down to their caves. In those caves, life is exactly what you would imagine it to be, foul and pitiful, at least warm and safe against the bombs and terror outside. There are no cities left in Germany. Aachen, Cologne, Bonn, Koblenz, Würzburg, Frankfurt, Mainz, all gone in one sweeping reach of destruction, whose like has not been seen since the mighty Genghis Khan came from the east and wiped out whole nations all the way from China to Bulgaria. End quote. Uh, when you read about what Germany or even you know any country in Eastern Europe was like at the close of World War II, it looks like an example of sort of a, a national PTSD. I mean... Everyone had been through an ordeal. Uh, many of us will fear for our lives, but typically it's a one-off event. You know, it, it's not something that's a constant. You know, if we're lucky, we'll never have to fear for the lives of our spouses or, or our family or, or worse still, our children. Uh, but people in this part of the world feared for that every day especially once you start getting to near the end of this war. And it seems like everyone gets a piece. Uh, the Nazis had sort of a you're for us or you're against us uh, mentality. You had to help them or risk life and limb to oppose them. But now the shoe was on the other foot. It was payback time. Historian Keith Lowe writes, quote, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, the threat or promise of vengeance permeated everything. It formed the thread in virtually every event that took place, from the arrest of Nazis and their collaborators to the wording of the post-war treaties that shaped Europe for decades to come. From leaders like Roosevelt to Tito, happily indulged themselves in the vengeful fantasies of their subordinates and sought to harness the popular desire for vengeance to further their own political causes. Commanders in the Allied armies turned a blind eye to the excesses of their men, and civilians took advantage of the chaos to redress years of impotence and victimization by dictators and petty tyrants alike. 
of all the themes that emerge in any study of the immediate post-war period, that of vengeance is particularly the most universal. End quote. You're going to get lots of stories of uh, American and British commanders uh, forcing citizens of nearby towns to tour concentration camps or allowing uh, German businesses to be looted. Uh, there were even numerous, not, not just numerous, but thousands of uh, alleged sexual assaults perpetrated by uh, U.S. And, and British troops um, during the war in Europe. But uh, none of that can be downplayed. But when you compare that with what happened in the East, it, it, it's just, it, it pales in comparison. You can see it by uh, which opponent uh, people wanted to surrender to, um, pretty much anybody on the Axis side. Uh, in the last weeks of the war in Europe, um, they're going to be characterized by uh, a mass movement to the West. Uh, you're going to have this one crazy circumstance where a German general, uh, Max Wenck, is going to fight his way West directly contravening Hitler's orders. I mean, Hitler's like stuck in Berlin and they're surrounded. They're about to be destroyed by the Soviets. This guy is going to disobey Hitler. He's going to keep fighting, but he's going to fight to get through Soviet lines just to surrender to, I believe it was the British. Um, I mean, think about that. At the end of the war, hundreds of thousands of Germans are going to die just trying to surrender to somebody that's not the Soviets. And an equal number, or maybe greater number of Soviets, are going to deny, try, or they're going to die only just trying to deny them that opportunity. But when you think of what Germany and her allies had done to the Soviet Union, I mean, you can certainly understand what all the bad blood is about. I mean, 25 million Soviets are going to die in this war. I mean, more than half of the Soviet prisoners are going to die in labor camps. And then you compare that with like 4% of British and American prisoners in German labor camps. Um, it just, that's a crazy stat in itself. I mean, the Holocaust happened almost entirely in the East. Uh, Hitler's dream is that the whole place is supposed to be some giant racial feudal estate with the Aryans as, as overlords. Um, you'll have instances where 30,000 people are shot in a ravine outside of Kiev, you know, all in just a, a couple of days. I mean, what does that even look like? But when you think of what Germany and her allies had done to the Soviet Union... I mean, you can certainly understand what all the bad blood is about. I mean, 25 million Soviets will die in this war. More than half of all Soviet prisoners of war will die in, in German labor camps compared with like 4% if you were a, a British or American or French prisoner. I mean, the Holocaust happened almost entirely in the East. And this part of the story, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with. Uh, it was supposed to be a giant racial feudal estate. Uh, Hitler talks about it in Mein Kampf. It's like the, the Germans need Liesenbrom in, in the East, living space. And the Aryans are supposed to be the overlords. You'll have 30,000 people shot outright in an afternoon outside of Kiev. 
I mean, the war is a meat grinder out there. I mean, every year, the German army will lose something like 40% of its personnel. And they'll find replacements. And then the replacements for the replacements. And it just goes on and on. I mean, it's crazy how the invasion of the Soviet Union starts with 3.7 million Axis invading. And then in 1944, they still have 3.4 million. Oh, that seems okay. But in that time, they lost 9.5 million killed or captured. The Soviets, meanwhile, in 1941, they, they have 2.7 million, but they just keep rolling up to 6.8 million by 1944. Meanwhile, their losses are 15 million. Just do the math. I mean, those beleaguered German soldiers running for their lives at the closing weeks of the war were not the same ones storming east to create this empire of blood and soil for their Fuhrer. I mean, same with the Soviets. The war just ground people up and spit them out on an industrial scale. By the end of the war you get the feeling that Germans know what their country has done in the East. And at times, like propaganda will actually allude to it. Uh, Goebbels will actually talk you know, vaguely about things that have happened in the East and you know, the Russians are coming this way and, and, and everything that they're going to do. And it sort of hits sort of a, a general consciousness. Um, I'm going to quote again from uh, that same issue of Life magazine. This is the uh, recollection of an American soldier uh, in this little south uh, German town on the uh, Tauber River. Uh, He says, uh, quote, A middle-aged German woman did my laundry in one of the little houses that cluster together behind masses of lilacs. She had a great bag of laundry uh, for me three times, and each time she charged me what she obviously regarded as the maximum. Three marks, which equals 30 cents. She did it beautifully, too. The last time I went there, when she knew we were moving out of town, she gathered her young daughter and her grandson close behind her and nerved herself to ask the big question that had obviously played on her mind for some weeks. Quote, when are you going to send us all to Siberia? End quote. And that's what you have in the end. It's kind of like fear and greed have just sort of swapped places. Uh, greed keeps the Germans going in the beginning of the war. And really, it's all that motivates them at the end. Uh, the Soviets will not close the concentration camps that they encounter for the most part. Um, they will keep them open. It's almost like an under new management sort of situation. Um, there will be mass deportations. Uh, there's going to be vast reparations, extractments, um, and you know a regime that's going to cause a lot of resentments in the years ahead. The Soviets, for their part... Um, begin the war absolutely petrified of the Germans. I mean, at the beginning of the war, the, the Germans seem unstoppable. Um, even even Stalin, at one point, fears all is lost. And, uh, you know, he, he's toying with the idea of abandoning Moscow. Uh, by the end of the war, 
the shoe is completely on the other foot. Uh, I'm going to quote uh, historian Keith Lowe again. Uh, quote, Absolute hatred of Germany and of Germans was endemic in Soviet society during the war. Up until the spring of 1945, Soviet soldiers had been subjected to the most strident hate propaganda, which demonized Germans and Germany in every possible way. The Soviet army newspaper Krasnaya Zaveda carried poems by Alexei Surkov with titles like I Hate, whose last line claimed, I want to strangle every one of them. Pravda printed poems uh, by Konstantin Simonov, such as Kill Him, published on the day Voroshli Vograd fell, uh, which exhorted Russian soldiers to kill a German, kill him soon, and every time you see one, kill him. Other writers, such as Mikhail Sokolov and Vasily Grossman, also wrote vitriolic stories and reports, which were designed to increase Soviet hatred for all things Germans. But it was Ilya Ehrenberg who occupied a special place in the hearts of the Soviet soldiers. Ehrenberg's inflammatory chants in Krasnaya Zaveda were printed and repeated so often that most soldiers knew them by heart. The Germans are not human beings. From now on, the word German is for us the worst imaginable curse. From now on, the word German strikes us to the quick. We shall not get excited. We shall kill. If you have not killed at least one German a day, you have wasted that day. If you cannot kill your German with a bullet, kill him with your bayonet. If there is calm on the part of on your part of the front, or if you are waiting for the fighting, kill a German in the meantime. If you kill one German, kill another. There is nothing more joyful than a heap of German corpses. The dehumanization of Germans was a constant theme of Ehrenberg's writings. As early as the summer of 1942, he claimed, One can bear anything, the plague and hunger and death, but one cannot bear the Germans. We cannot live as long as these gray-green slugs are alive. Today there are no books. Today there are no stars in the sky. Today there is only one thought. Kill the Germans. Kill them all. And dig them into the earth. End quote. You can't just turn off this level of animosity like a light switch. It's something that sticks around. All of these Soviet soldiers that will be occupying... All of these different countries of Eastern Europe are going, to, are going to keep this with them. And it's not just going to be directed at ethnic Germans, but anybody who lived in a territory that the Germans occupied. They're going to see collaborators where, you know, maybe there were or maybe there weren't collaborators. Um, this is going to be Soviet policy. And this contrasts with how things are in the West, where you have the Americans and the British, and, and they're instituting their own, you know, like, like democratic liberalism. Um, Lowe goes on to kind of describe the two different regimes and how they operated. Uh, quote, in the West, the Allies not only imposed a system that required harmony between different ethnic groups, but provide an example of that harmony in action. The Allied armies in the West contained people from dozens of countries in all six continents. The military governments contained representatives from four of the world's great powers, all of whom were obliged to get on with one another. 
One would expect the Soviets to have imposed similar attitudes on the eastern half of Europe. Their internationalist doctrine required the workers of all nations to unite in pursuit of common goals, but in fact they promoted the persecution of minorities within the Soviet Union itself and within the Eastern European countries that would become Soviet satellite states. It was the Soviets who pushed through the population exchange between Poland and Ukraine. It was the Soviets who supported Poland's expulsion of the Germans from recovered territories and who insisted on similar expulsions of Germans from the rest of Eastern Europe when the British and Americans refused Czechoslovakia the right to expel uh, its Hungarian minority during the Paris Peace Conference. The Soviet delegation were deeply in favor of it and they supported similar ethnic deportations in all the countries where they had become the dominant power. Rather than fighting against racial and ethnic hatred in the areas they controlled, the Soviets sought to harness it. In many ways in which the internationalist and racist policies that swept Eastern Europe after the war suited the Soviets. To begin with, the place people were far easier to control than people who were entrenched in their homelands and traditions. The chaos created by the deportations uh, was also the ideal atmosphere for preaching revolution. The lands and businesses left behind could be parceled out and redistributed amongst the workers and the poor, thus furthering a communist agenda. It also created a new loyalty among those who received land and who saw communist uh, party as their benefactors. By promoting communism throughout Europe, the Soviets were also promoting loyalty to Moscow, the home of international communism, end quote. Now, why is all of this important? Um, why is it important that you have these two different style of regimes in the East and the West? Well, as you can probably imagine, um, people would much rather exist in a system where they're treated with, you know, a moderate degree of dignity and you don't have tyrants basically dictating your life and setting up puppet governments. Um, typically, more open democratic systems tend to be more efficient. Um, this period is going to be no different. Uh, the West is going to rebound economically much sooner than the East. Uh, in Soviet-controlled territories, uh, Stalin actually keeps the economy on pretty much a war footing between 80 and 90 percent of all goods produced are in heavy industry. There are very few consumer goods for your typical consumer. Uh, in the West, it's almost the opposite way around. Uh, the economy is sort of being rebuilt from the ground up. So while it, the recovery is sort of sluggish everywhere, it, it does much better in the West. Now, Stalin is going to promise liberal reforms. He's going to promised free elections in pretty much all the territories that uh, his, his troops dominate. But in reality, you one by one, you're going to get these governments that are either directly installed by the Soviets or they're closely aligned with the Soviet Union. So free elections really never happen. Um, Stalin and uh, many other communists uh, really made no bones about what they thought the future had in store for humanity. Uh, eventually, the revolution would be global. Uh, communism 
will take over the earth. This is an article of faith if you are a Marxist-Leninist. Um, how exactly that's going to happen is, you know, there's a lot of debate about that. But um, now, if they could help that happen, so be it. Um, Stalin's going to make a, uh, a speech at the, uh, the Bolshoi Theater. Uh, this is from uh, historian Garrett M. Graf. Uh, Stalin uh, took the stage on a Friday, uh, February 9th, 1946, to explain his view of the East versus West and the grand historic battle he saw between communism and capitalism. The two worldviews were simply incompatible and Stalin made clear he foresaw war looming. As his foreign minister explained later, Stalin believed the First World War pulled one country out of capitalist slavery, the Second World War created a socialist system, and the Third will put an end to imperialism once and for all. End quote. Now, if you are Stalin, you have to be, I mean, of course, happy. I mean, you did win the war, but you have to be a little bit disappointed with the way things ended uh there is a story about how at potsdam that's the peace conference that basically you know it's, it's the settlement to the end of the war in europe um he's asked by a u.s ambassador if he's happy to be there and stalin kind of is supposed to have responded czar alexander made it to paris uh, that, of course, is uh, in reference to Tsar uh, Alexander I, who, you know, having uh, defeated Napoleon, you know, actually moves all the way into France afterwards, completely defeating his enemy. Um, still, I, every, if you, if, I mean, if you look at a map of Europe, if you're the Soviets, like every country in Western Europe had either flirted with socialism before the war or was flirting with it now i mean germany that it, it is the heartland of i mean if you're a marxist that's where Karl marx is from right um you know before the war there was a very strong socialist movement uh it was suppressed by the nazis but um they'd be sure reemerge if given the chance um italy had a strong labor movement France had flirted with it. Uh, I mean, Spain. I mean, if the Soviets actually helped Spain, Spanish communists fight a, a civil war against fascism. Uh, Britain had just ousted Churchill and installed a, a left-leaning labor government. Now, World War II took Stalin by surprise. Um, there's a really great quote from uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore's uh, biography of Stalin uh, in the court of the Red Tsar. Uh, he says this, Europe in early 1939 was, in Stalin's own words, a poker game with three players in which one each hoped to persuade the other to destroy the other one and leave the third to take the winnings. The three players were the fascists of Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany, the capitalists of Never Chamberlain's Britain, allied with Deladier's France, and the Bolsheviks. Though the Georgians admired the flamboyant brutality of the Austrian, he appreciated the danger of a resurgent German militarily and the hostility of fascism. End quote. So if you're Stalin at this point, 
Yes, I mean, you can be a little bit hard on yourself. I mean, you certainly miscalculated the way things would go down between, say, Germany and France at the outset of the war. I mean, uh, he never expected for... It was basically a military miracle, the way in May 1940, the, you know, the, the Wehrmacht is going to cut right through the Ardennes forest, you know, kick France out of the war. Uh, Britain has to flee with nothing but the shirts on their back. And then, you know, Germany's going to have the ability to turn around and invade the Soviet Union. That catches him as a total surprise. But, you know, nonetheless, he's back in the position where he wanted to be all along, where one of these three players has been eliminated. He's just picking up the game where you know he feels he should be at this point. And if you want to look at it, uh, well, even more cynically, uh, 1948, you have the Marshall Plan. Uh, the United States is going to inject billions and billions of dollars uh, rebuilding the infrastructure of Western Europe. Of course, Soviets aren't going to take that money for their part, but... Um, you know, it's almost like they're setting the table for you. Not only that, but immediately after the war, the U.S. and pretty much all our wartime allies are going to drastically cut down their militaries. You know, the troops are going to go home and return to civilian life like they had planned. Um, not so with the Soviet Union. Uh, they, they are going to have roughly 10 million troops near the end of the war. They're going to keep 2.3 million uh, and almost all of those are going to be in Europe when the war ends. Uh, the Red Army at that point is battle-hardened. It had tons of tanks, military hardware, you name it. By 1947, the Red Army will have 50 divisions in Europe. The U.S. will have one in Germany. Uh, the U.S. was completely dismantling its armed forces. It, almost, it was almost like a fire sale. Um, overall, I mean, and, and this is U.S. commitments all over the world. They go from 8 million to less than a million. Uh, the defense budget is going to be cut by 90%. Uh, <laughs> not only that, but the, the U.S. Uh, US troops are going to stage protest marches in West Germany because their discharge is going too slow. Uh, the, the amount of airplanes in the U.S. inventory goes from 80,000 to 25,000, and only 10,000 of the remaining planes are going to be deemed combat-ready. Uh, the Soviets seem to be... It's almost like they're just looking on very intently. Uh, when asked what the Red Army needed to advance into Switzerland, apparently one U.S. commander said, shoes. Right about the same time that uh, Stalin makes his uh, speech in the Bolshoi Theater, talking about the uh, impending Third World War, uh, Churchill's going to make his uh, famous... Iron Curtain speech at uh, in Missouri. Uh, Edward R. Murrow, uh, the CBS correspondent, is going to say, "Quote: uh, Seldom has a war ended, leaving the victors 
with such a sense of uncertainty and fear, end quote. Of course, there is one other development from this time as well. Uh, the United States is going to drop two atomic bombs on uh, Japan to end the war there in uh, August of 1945. And it's for this brief period of time between 1945 and 1949 that only the United States has this technology and it is accepted fact that were it not for that technology, there really would be very little to stop the Soviets from doing really whatever they wanted. Now, it's uh, also pretty interesting that it's uh, at this time that the United Nations sort of comes into being. And uh, there's a lot of debate early on about how this new technology should be handled because people, a lot of people came to the conclusion that uh, these are potentially, could endanger all mankind. And perhaps you could take atomic weapons and leave them under international control. And that's something that the Soviets proposed very early on at the UN. But of course, you know, if you are the United States, uh, that's really not so easy to do because that's sort of giving away uh, what is going to be described as a royal straight flush when it comes to military technology. Uh, General uh, Leslie Groves uh, put it really great when he said, quote, if there are to be atomic bombs in the world, we must have the best and the biggest and the most, end quote. So the U.S. is going to be forced to adopt a policy of uh, what will be called deterrence, although that word really hadn't come into the, the modern parlance yet. Uh, they, they're going to have to threaten to use atomic weapons on the Soviets if they attempted to take Western Europe, and then the same threats are going to be used elsewhere where they're attempting to sort of spread communism. Now, Stalin had known about the Manhattan Project way back in, in March of 1942. I mean, he knew about the Manhattan Project before Truman, the American president, knew about it, which is sort of like a weird you know, historical uh, thing. He, he knew about uh, the the Trinity test from his, uh, his spies, you know, before... Truman tells him, but apparently Truman, you know, he thinks that uh, he approaches Stalin. Uh, this is at uh, Potsdam. He goes up to him kind of, you know, gently says, the USA has tested a new bomb of extraordinary destructive power. And then uh, one of uh, Stalin's aides, uh, Pavlov, watches him. Uh, he says that Stalin uh, moved no muscle in his face. He said... He was simply glad to hear it. The Soviets are going to embark on their own uh, their own program to build an atomic bomb uh, not too long after uh, the U.S. did. Uh, Stalin is going to put Leventry Beria, probably the scariest person in the Soviet Union, maybe even scarier than Stalin himself, in charge of the bomb project. So... Um, this is the guy that runs the uh, secret police, um, the uh, weapons designers that are going to be in charge of the Soviet uh, program. They are kind of put 
it's not quite of a gulag situation, but they are definitely, you know, under, they are being forced to do their jobs. And let's just say uh, there are certain not so thinly veiled threats uh, if they do not do their jobs adequately. Now, what Stalin does not know is that these weapons probably would not be as successful as they're sort of made out to be by the U.S. Um, after the, the, the first several tests, uh, there's going to be one test in 1946 in Bikini Atoll uh, where uh, a uranium bomb, uh, same type of bomb that was dropped on uh, Hiroshima, is basically dropped on a fleet of ships. Um, it fails to sink 83 out of the 88 ships. Uh, you know, maybe using atomic weapons in a traditional manner really wouldn't work all that well. Um, you know, if you are the United States, you know, what do you do if the Soviets just decide to plow ahead and, you know, maybe... Maybe they're going to come to the conclusion that they're just dealing with a paper tiger. Um, so it's at this point that you have early plans for how to respond to the Soviet Union if they actually do what everybody fears they are going to do and move into Western Europe. Um, early plans are going to center around the idea of an atomic blitz um, if the Soviets attack the U.S. and uh, her allies uh, will be forced to retreat, but 30 bombs might be sufficient to destroy enough Soviet cities to force them to cry uncle. So bases in Great Britain, Italy, and Spain, possibly the Middle East, uh, Japan, later the mainland United States would be used as a staging points. Uh, the Red Army was considered to be too strong to resist with just the one measly division that was available in Europe at the time. And uh, the NATO troops that are supposed to be there really haven't materialized. Um, so there would be this sort of headlong retreat that might go as far as Spain. And... You know, there you, you might see kind of like a, an armed resistance in Spain. You'd make sort of a last stand there. Uh, one really big problem with this plan is that by the end of 1946, um, the U.S. stockpile is going to be just 10 bombs. Uh, not only that, but the bombs are mostly uh, Mark III fat man type bombs. Uh, they weigh about 10,000 pounds each. Uh, only silver plate B-29s could carry them. And then uh, even by the beginning of 1948, there would, just, there would be only 32 of these that could fly. So if Stalin decided to invade right at this point, uh, the West would be in some serious trouble. There are way too few weapons on hand. And there's no way to deliver these weapons to their target. The first plan to be adopted officially by the U.S. military is going to be codenamed Broiler. Uh, this is a plan that's going to be adopted in 1947, 
with the assumption that war would begin in 1948. Um, it had different variations if the conflict started several years later. Instead, uh, there's not much in the way of long-term goals here. Uh, again, they hope to liberate Europe after it's overrun. Uh, best case, the Soviets would be driven back to where they were at the start of World War II, but it's not quite clear. Uh, it was hoped that by 1948, uh, there would be 100 to 200 atomic bombs available and that these would be used to destroy, uh, this time, 24 Soviet cities. Uh, Moscow is going to get seven bombs under this plan. Leningrad's going to get two. There's going to be two on Stalingrad. There's going to be uh, two on Kharkov. Um, hopefully, this would make uh, the Soviets sue for peace. But again, it's, it's really not quite clear how this would work because you just have to assume that society is going to be destroyed enough that they're just going to be willing to retreat from all the ground that they've gained on the European mainland. And of course, you assume that they haven't gotten a bomb of their own by this point. And it's, it's during this period where, you know, looking back at everything, if the Soviet Union were just to go on the offensive, they're really, it, it, we, I just, I can't really see a way that, you know, NATO isn't even a thing yet, <laughs> you know, what would stop them? Uh, the, the military was just so enervated and they just really didn't have plans that were really workable. Um, that is going to begin to change. Uh, the United States Armed Forces is going to go through sort of an administrative restructuring in 1947. So uh, the, the Army and the Navy are going to be placed within this single defense department along with the Marines and a, a new independent Air Force before the Air Force was sort of a, a part of the Army. Um Truman, he really struggles with the idea of the atomic bomb. Uh, he, he never, he didn't trust his generals with it, um, you know, under his watch. Uh, I, as I mentioned before in the, uh, the last episode, uh, the weapons are going to be placed under a civilian lock and key type situation. This is the Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, you know, where the bombs are. Uh, are, how many they're going to be used, um, you know, all, all of this is controlled by a civilian um, institution. Now, how many there are in the stockpile is an absolute top secret. I mean, even the Secretary of Defense does not know how many atomic bombs there are. Everything has to go directly through the president um and the bombs uh from this point you, you google image search them they look like they look like something from like a warner brothers cartoon you know how like you see like a, a stereotypical looking bomb like they look exactly like that they're they're almost silly looking 
and the early ones have like wires all around the side. It, it looks like something that some mad scientist sort of built in their garage. I mean, they don't look like something, you know, that is capable of like the devastation that they are. Um, they're so weird and complex that you have to, there, there's an armed forces uh, special weapons project created to sort of, I guess, give tutorials about how to use them. And, and members of this, this special weapons project, they, they each wore a badge with, I, I kid you not, a white mushroom cloud and a red atomic symbol on it. They, 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 they're going to train um, the staff on how to deal with the, the, these, these really cumbersome, short-lived uh, acid batteries, uh, how to use, like, neutron initiators. Uh, you know, the bombs couldn't just go around ready to go. Apparently, like, the, you know, the, the, they had a uranium core that has, has to be kept separate from the other materials, or it would, it would overheat, and, you know, possibly there would be a, a nuclear... Not a detonation, but it could go into critical mass. Um... So it's a, it's a mind-numbingly complex process uh, on different occasions. Uh, even trained staff staff would like drop a core by mistake, and you know several of them died because they they got irradiated. Truman is uh, he's he's going to come to believe that you know if the bomb is going to be used, it should be the Air Force that should be given the responsibility to use it. Um, only the Air Force has planes big enough to carry these giant things. Uh, within the Air Force, there's going to be a special command. That's sort of that uh, subsidiary thing within the Air Force um, that would manage the nation's nuclear arsenal. Uh, in order to use the weapons, uh, he had to give the order each and every time, but this strategic air command would be his sort of go-to. Um, you can look online what their insignia looks like. It, it's it's a giant, like, mailed fist, like, you know, like a knight in armor, like just the fist, right? And it's holding three red lightning bolts and an olive branch. I mean, it's it's really badass, I think. You know, in the background, there's like a, a blue sky with with clouds. You know, I really like it as far as like uh, you know insignia goes. It really shows you what these guys are about. Um, eventually, they're going to oversee all of the missiles as well as the plane delivered weapons. Um, originally, it, it's going to have kind of a shaky start. Uh, they're going to have one bombing exercise where you know they they're they're supposed to. I mean, not actually bomb it, but like uh, they're 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 told they have to go on a mission and fly across the country, and they have to hit a target in like Dayton, Ohio, and like every single one of the planes like misses this fictitious target like on and uh, on this exercise. So they're going to get kind of a new chief, and that is going to be, of course, Curtis LeMay. Now, LeMay, uh, love him or hate him, he is a character. Uh, this is from uh, Fred Kaplan's uh, Wizards of Armageddon. Uh, quote, 
To LeMay, demolishing everything was how you win a war. He thought that strategic bombing in Europe had been handled all wrong with too much fussing about with uh, bottleneck targets and precision bombing. That the whole point of strategic bombing was to be massive, a campaign of holy terror. The atom bomb only made this point stronger. LeMay thought that the advent of the atomic bomb blasted all doubts that air power could win a war by itself. LeMay kept three big pictures framed next to one another on the walls of his office at SAC headquarters. The first was a painting of Napoleon's army retreating from Russia. The second was a painting of Hitler's armies retreating from Russia. The third displayed a message from Winston Churchill's 1949 speech delivered at the mid-century convocation of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology proclaiming, For good or ill, air mastery is today the supreme expression of military power and fleets and armies, however necessary and important, must accept subordinate rank, end quote. LeMay did not like the idea that uh, a lot of people at Strategic Air Command had about attacking industrial complexes or, or military targets or anything like that. He strongly believed that atomic bombs were city killers. Uh, your planes might not be able to find their targets, and you only have so many of these bombs. Um, the idea that you might be killing innocent civilians just simply doesn't make much sense to him because yet you can find, if you don't have, I mean, they don't even have adequate maps of like Soviet territory, you know? How can you really find a small target in the vastness of that place if you really... I mean, you can see a city from a distance, but something smaller, I don't know, it, it, you might just be wasting everything. Uh, he planned in his emergency war plan uh, 149 uh, to deliver the entire stockpile of atomic bombs in a single massive attack, uh, pounding, uh, quote, 133 A-bombs on 70 cities within 30 days, end quote. So war plans from 1948 and 49, uh, uh, codenamed Half Moon and then Off Tackle, uh, written under LeMay's influence, became increasingly aggressive with demands for uh, more nuclear-capable bombers. Uh, there's going to be this new, it, it's called a Convair B-36 Peacemaker. Uh, this bomb, it, it's absolutely huge. Uh the only way you can really tell how big it is uh, is when you see it. There are some Google images where it's like right up next to like a, a World War II bomber, like the biggest one from World War II. It's like double the size. Uh, it's a beast. It's a massive five-story high plane with a wingspan almost as long as a football field. Not as wide as a football field, as long as a football field. Uh, it had six back-facing propellers. And then four jet engines, too, because why not? Uh, it could fly 36 hours without refueling, 10,000 miles, with an 87,000-pound payload. Uh, they're going to build 384 of these things. And uh, atomic bombs. Uh, fortunately, uh, well, as far as those go, the uh, supply is not going to be able to catch up with demand right at that point. But by 1949, uh, there would be 170 bombs in the stockpile. 
uh, that is a far cry from the 50, you know, just the year before and then, you know, like 10 before that. LeMay took a very dim view of holding back in war. Uh, he kind of reminds you of William Tecumseh Sherman uh, or, or Robert E. Lee when he said, uh, it is well that war is so terrible lest we go fond of it. Um, his crews were trained relentlessly, uh, probably more difficult from any training uh, in the military at that time. Uh, one officer said, quote, training in sack was harder than war. It might have been a relief to go to war, end quote. Now, all of this would become, well, all too relevant during the, uh, the geopolitical gamble that Stalin is going to take between June 1948 and then May 1949. Uh, so basically, Germany had been divided among the Allied powers following uh, the end of World War II. Uh, the Soviets are going to control the East, but the capital, Berlin, is also in the east and then berlin itself is in turn subdivided amongst the different allied powers uh it's a pretty awkward situation since you have to travel through soviet territory to get to the american the the british or the french part of berlin um so in june 1948 stalin decided to basically test the resolve of the allies and uh, cut off access to west berlin so no food no fuel nothing um, he kind of resented how the Europeans were responding to the aid from the Marshall Plan, and he wanted to show the Germans basically who's in charge. So I guess that's game over for Berlin. Uh, well, not quite. Historian John Lewis Gaddis writes, Stalin's blockade backfired badly. The Western Allies improvised an airlift for the beleaguered city, thereby winning the empathic gratitude of the Berliners the respect of most Germans, and global public relations triumph that made Stalin look both brutal and incompetent. Scoundrels, the old man noted defensively on a diplomatic dispatch reporting these developments. It's all lies. It's not a blockade, but a defensive measure, end quote. So Stalin, uh, he's really going to get nothing that he wanted. Uh, there's going to be an official West German state now. And also there's going to be something called uh, NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's basically a big uh, alliance system where if one of these states is attacked, all of the rest of them have to respond. So if you fight one, you fight the other. So there's no way, because of NATO, that the Soviet Union can you know pick off one of these European countries and just say, no, 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 we're not going to deal with the other ones everybody's kind of under this giant nuclear umbrella. Uh, not good. Um, so war could have been easily sparked then and there. Uh, so how the Americans, the British, and French would have fared in 1948, again, it's pretty uncertain. Um, nonetheless, Stalin's failure to shoot down any of the thousands of planes that were supplying the city every day can really only be attributed to his apprehension of the bomb. Um, it's also claimed that um, Stalin at that point was threatened with bombs over uh, his involvement in Iran. Uh, Stalin had to back down there too. He had Soviet troops were in Iran at the time, and Truman's going to use the atomic bomb as a threat, although 
it's kind of difficult to verify that one. So then on August 29th, 1949, everything changed. Uh, I'm going to open up to Monte Fiore's uh, book on uh, his biography of Stalin because I, I love this story. Uh, so, as we had mentioned before, Leventry Beria, the uh, Stalin's uh, secret police guy, he's, he's in charge of the atomic bomb project. Um, so he's going to be there to witness the first detonation of one of these things, in, you know, in the middle of the desert in Kazakhstan. So, uh, quote, uh, At 6 p.m., they assembled in the command post 10 kilometers away with its control panel and telephones to Moscow, all behind an earthen wall to deflect the shockwave. Kurchakov, the scientist, uh, ordered detonation. There was a bright flash. After the shockwave had passed, they hurried outside to admire the mushroom cloud rising majestically before them. Beria was wildly excited, kissed Kurchakov on the forehead, uh, <laughs> but he kept asking, Did it look like the American one? We didn't screw up? Kurchakov uh, isn't pulling our leg, is he? Uh, he was very relieved to hear that the destruction at the site was apocalyptic. It would have been a great misfortune if this hadn't worked out, he said. He hurried to the telephone to ring Stalin, uh, to be the first to tell him. But when he rang, Stalin replied crushingly that he had already uh, he already knew and hung up. Stalin had his own sources. Beria punched the general who had dared to dared tell Stalin first, shouting, You've put a spoke in my wheel. Traitor, I'll grind you to pulp. But he was hugely proud of the colossal achievement. Four years later, after Hiroshima, Stalin had the bomb. End quote. So, the United States and the Soviet Union are, are now in a race. Actually, they're in two races. You have, you have one, uh, atomic weapons, and the other, conventional. Uh, the U.S. clearly led in the one, but the Soviets led in the other. Everyone knew that this... This delicate balance is not going to last forever. Uh, the next year, 1950, the world came closer still to a nuclear event. Um, if there was ever a battlefield situation where a commander could justify the use of at least a small part of the atomic arsenal, it's it's going to be Korea. Uh, it is war that... It swung back and forth wildly. At one point, America and its UN allies are almost pushed off the peninsula completely. The solution came from a decisive, risky strategy on the part of a the U.S. General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, one of the, the greatest surprise amphibious invasions of all time. He's going to land 80,000 U.S. troops on September 15th, 1950 at a place called Incheon, potentially cutting off all North Korean forces in the uh, the southern half of the country. So um, the beleaguered U.S. garrison, which was all the way in the south at uh, Pusan, had, had almost been swept into the sea, you know, just you know, a month or two earlier. They were relieved. So the besiegers in this situation are now risk becoming the besieged. Uh, so by 19... October 1950, uh, the UN forces had nearly retaken uh, the entirety of Korea. And then in this, just this weird, almost, I mean, you have to feel sorry for MacArthur here. This, out of nowhere, um, on October the 15th, the communist Chinese army was just going to strike. Uh, pretty soon the UN forces are on the ropes again. Uh, 
So China had only recently fallen to communism. Um, they have this new leader, uh, Mao Zedong, but people don't really know what to make of him. Um, we know now that he was a super hardliner and that he even welcomed nuclear war with the West if it would help his cause. Uh, he called the atom bomb a, quote, uh, paper tiger. Um, and even though that uh, if, if half the people on Earth died in, in the coming war, uh, it would be a welcome development since it meant the imperialists would be crushed and world socialism would become a reality. Uh, he's uh, quoted to have said, uh, all political power comes from the, uh, the barrel of a gun. His story is pretty amazing. I mean, if you look at a map of what the Chinese communists were down to in 1941, you'll know what I mean. I mean, uh, they could not have done this without the Soviets. Uh, their geographical base is going to be Manchuria. And that's the part that the Soviets had taken from Japan in 1945. Um, Stalin and his successors did not trust the Chinese with the nukes. Uh, that type of conflict was not something that they really could handle in the 1950s. Uh, you know, the U.S. didn't know it at the time, but in 1950, uh, the Soviets will only have five devices and absolutely no really reliable way to put them on target. Uh, so MacArthur, in this whole thing, uh, sees an opportunity to use this new weapon. It's like, why, why are we making these things? I mean, this is supposed to be the bedrock of our, our military strength. Um, the U.S. at this point has about 300 of them, and now finally the number is like starting to like take off. Um, you know, the, the, the U.N. forces are in full retreat. Uh, they're abandoning Seoul, the capital of uh, South Korea. Uh, 30,000 UN troops are uh, nearly surrounded and annihilated near the Chosin Reservoir. Uh, Truman had stated in a press conference on um, November 30th, uh, 1950, uh, quote, the military commander in the field will have charge of the use of the nuclear weapons. Always has. Uh, end quote. Uh, the White House would walk that back, saying, quote, only the president can authorize the use of an atomic bomb, um, end quote. Uh, MacArthur asked for 34 atomic bombs for the, quote, unquote, uh, retardation of targets in Manchuria. So in response, uh, Truman is going to send four bombs, but deliver them to SAC, so this, the Air Force, not, you know, MacArthur. MacArthur is uh, Army, of course. Um, so on December 1st, 1950, MacArthur is asked by a reporter if the restrictions on operations against Chinese forces on the far side of the Yalu River were a, quote, uh, handicap to effective military operations, end quote, he replied that they were indeed, uh, quote, an enormous handicap, unprecedented in military history, end quote. Uh, Truman ordered MacArthur to refrain from making statements to the public. 
but then MacArthur just cannot avoid stepping in it. Uh, he's going to criticize Truman's foreign policy decisions, saying that China should be uh, easily defeated if we were only allowed to pursue the war on his own terms. Um, and this would go back and forth in, in public fashion until, until Truman is going to make the decision to fire this popular general. I mean, he's like an American hero. Um, he And while he's in the middle of successfully driving the North Koreans you know, out of Seoul, uh, back across the uh, 38th parallel. Uh, politically, this is terrible for Truman. Uh, looking back, most people think he did the right thing. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's very difficult to say where this conflict would have gone, you know, once you kind of burst that sort of nuclear bubble. I mean, uh, but anyway, um, in a 1954 uh, interview uh, MacArthur did with the New York Times, he said, quote, of all the campaigns of my life, 20 major ones to be exact, Korea was the one I felt most sure of. Uh, was the one I was deprived of waging. I could have won the war in Korea in a maximum of 10 days. I would have dropped between 30 and 50 atomic bombs on his air bases and other depots strung across the neck of Manchuria. It was my plan, as our amphibious forces moved south, to spread uh, behind us from the Sea of Japan to the Yellow Sea, a belt of radioactive cobalt. It could have been spread from wagons, carts, trucks, and planes for at least 60 years. There could have been no land invasion of Korea from the north. The enemy could not have marched across that radiated belt, end quote. You know, I, I read this quote from MacArthur, and I'm just not, I'm not sure what he really wants to do. He wants to create a giant irradiated belt on the Korean peninsula. Okay, um... Yeah, I, I got to side with Truman on this one. Uh, again, the bombs from this time period, I mean, they only have so many. And then, you know, you, you're, the cities would not really be, like, effective targets. I mean, you're, you're fighting a pretty, it's almost like a peasant army with the Chinese there. I, I just don't understand how we would have made it work. But nonetheless, um, you get the feeling from Truman that he just, he doesn't know what to do with the whole nuclear question. You know, his, his, his military experience is limited to this minor, well, I mean, he had combat experience in the First World War. We know that. Um, he tended to trust his generals, but was always kind of wary of them. Um, the moral issues of this new weapon really dogged him. When uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer uh, expressed regrets about having built the bomb, saying, quote, I feel like I have blood on my hands, end quote, uh, Truman responded by offering his handkerchief, saying, uh, quote, uh, would you like something to wipe it with, end quote. Uh, later, he would say, quote, uh, I don't want that effing cretin around me again. He didn't make the decision to drop the bomb. I did. That kind of weepiness makes me sick, end quote. Uh, he would call atomic weapons the greatest thing in the history of the world. But at the same time, he advocated, uh, at least initially, uh, international organization controlling them as late as 1946, maybe 1947. Uh, he'd say that atomic warfare is not something that should be pursued by rational men. That's a quote of his. 
Uh, of course, he wasn't alone in his moral quandary. Uh, in 1949, there's going to be this event known as the uh, Revolt of the Admirals. You're going to have a number of uh, Navy officials who publicly protested against the scrapping of a, uh, a new aircraft carrier, the uh, USS United States. Instead, uh, the, the Air Force has got to get a new contract for the, uh, the B-36 Peacemaker. So uh, Dan Carlin's actually going to describe this uh, little episode in his book, uh, The End is Always Near. Quote, One high-ranking admiral after another condemned the atomic blitz, arguing that the bombing of Soviet cities would not only be futile, but immoral. Admiral William Bull Halsey, a commander in the South Pacific during the war, and a man whose battle group got Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle's planes close enough to Japan to bomb Tokyo in 1942, testified thus, I don't believe in killing, uh, mass killing of non-combatants. Admiral Arthur W. Rafford, commander of the Northern Carrier Group and eventually the vice chief of naval operations during the war, said a war of annihilation might bring a pyrrhic victory, but would be politically and economically senseless. And Rear Admiral Ralph A. Ofsted, who had toured burned-out cities of Japan after the war, described the atomic blitz as the random mass slaughter of men, women, and children. The whole idea, he said, was ruthless and barbaric and contrary to American values. It's hard to know how much of the Navy's opposition was truly based on morality or how much might have been an effort to defend the necessity and relevance of a branch of the military services in the face of those looming budget cuts. End quote. And the thing about all of these criticisms uh, is that they happened in public. Um, the whole nation was really watching this. I mean, this was like a pretty, you know, a big thing. Uh, one observer wrote, uh, quote, uh, due to this leadership void and a poorly presented case, the Navy, it appeared, was losing the case for the people, uh, end quote. There is going to be a Gallup poll from the 15th October that showed uh, 74% of voters favoring the Air Force's role in a future war compared with only uh, 6% with the Army and then just 4% with the Navy. Um, people really couldn't make out what they were really saying. Uh, a Newsweek article is going to say basically that, uh, quote, it's sometimes difficult to figure precisely what the Navy recalcitrants want. Uh, sometimes they attack the whole idea of strategic bombing, as uh, Admiral Radford did. And then sometimes they simply say they can do it better, end quote. And then the uh, irony is that once the Navy starts to acquire nuclear weapons of its own, they just promptly change their tune. Uh, Fred Kaplan writes, quote, uh, once the Navy began to acquire atomic weapons of its own in 1951, fleet officers started to spout the same doctrine. It is in our interest, wrote L.D. McCormick, acting chief of naval operations in July of that year, to convince the world at large that the use of atomic weapons is lo no less humane than the employment of an equivalent weight of so-called conventional weapons. The destruction of certain targets is essential to the successful completion of a war with the USSR. The pros and cons of the means to accomplish their destruction is purely academic, end quote. In time, there's going to be a uh, military doctrine uh, formulated uh, known as the uh, nuclear triad, where you're going to have uh, bomber-based weapons, 
and then uh, missile-based weapons, and then uh, naval-based weapons. So basically, you know, you have your ICBMs, and then you have your, you know, nuclear bombers and fighters, and then you have submarine-launched uh, missiles. And the idea is that uh, if an enemy were to knock out, you know, even two legs of this triad, the third one would still be around to deliver, you know, a crippling counterblow to an opponent. Um so back to Truman, uh, probably the most important decision he is going to make uh, during his term as president is going to be the decision to build uh, what's going to be called the super or the first thermonuclear bomb. Um, of course, this is going to be fraught with controversy. Uh, in the last episode, I talked a little bit about the different types of nuclear weapons. You know, basically you have you have your fission bombs and then your fusion bombs. So you'll have, you know, your original uranium or plutonium, and then you have these other bombs, which they have the two components where, you know, you're going to have like the original fission bomb, but then you're going to have these hydrogen isotopes, which, you know, once they fuse, they're going to form, uh, and the detonation is going to be much, much, much larger, exponentially larger. And it's interesting how a lot of the scientists, actually most of the scientists that were behind the original Manhattan Project are going to come out against this plan to build this this much, much, much larger type of weapon, saying that uh, basically it's just, it's, it's not necessary. We already have weapons that are immensely powerful. You create this new thing. I mean, maybe you're opening the door to... A weapon system that is a threat to life on Earth. Um, this is from AtomicHeritage.org. Uh, quote: uh, Some, including Edward Teller, E.O. Lawrence, and Louis Alvarez, believe that building the hydrogen bomb was the best way to counter the new Soviet threat and reclaim the advantage in the nuclear arms race. But others, including Robert Oppenheimer, James B. Conant. David uh, E. Lilienthal believed that the hydrogen bomb was a weapon of mass genocide, even more so than the atomic bomb, and its development would ultimately threaten the future of the human race. The debate over whether or not to build the super would be played out in the last months of 1949, and Truman's decision in January 1950 would drastically alter the course of the Cold War. End quote. And uh, this particular decision tells us a lot about uh, Truman's thought process. Uh, at some point, there's going to be a meeting, and uh, he asked, uh, can the Russians build one? And then when the answer comes back, uh, yes, uh, he's going to respond, uh, well, then the matter is settled. And uh, this this project to build the super is just absolutely immense. Uh, I'm going to quote Garrett Graff's uh, book, Raven Rock, uh, quote, uh, The crash program for building the super dwarfed even the Manhattan Project. The AEC nearly tripled in size, growing from a handful of sites and 55,000 employees to 142,000 employees and spread across more than a score of sites. It would devour nearly seven percent of the entire the nation's entire electrical output, and according to historian Richards Rhodes, exceed the capital investment of the combined market capitalization of Bethlehem Steel, U.S. Steel, Alcoa, Dupont, Goodyear, and General Motors. Albert Einstein, though 
summed up the AEC's new project more succinctly than any statistics from the sidelines. As Lilienthal's AEC embarked on building, Campbell uh, Einstein told a television interviewer, quote, general annihilation beckons, end quote. And this from uh, AtomicHeritage.org, quote, two and a half years later, on November 1st, 1952, the United States tested its first ever thermonuclear device on Enewetok Atoll in the South Pacific. The Mike shot, as it was known, yielded 10 megatons of TNT and was roughly 1,000 times larger than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima seven years earlier. Less than a year later, the Soviets exploded their first thermonuclear weapon. By 1953, the nuclear arms race was on, end quote. And that term, uh, race, it really becomes applicable at this time. I mean, technology is moving so fast that it makes your head spin when you think about it. Thinking about all of human history, all warfare going back to the beginning, you know, things happen typically at a very glacial pace. And then even after this time, I mean, think about it this way, like uh, typically military hardware today is going to have a much longer lifespan. Uh, Take something like the F-16 fighter jet. Uh, It's introduced in 1978. It's still active. Um, A Minuteman III intercontinental ballistic missile built in 1970. It's still waiting, you know, patiently in its, its silo. It's... You know, a lot of these things are still in service. Uh, even, you know, the B-52 bombers constructed in the, the mid-1950s, uh, many of them are still in service. But by the period we're talking about, you know, the early mid-1950s, nothing constructed just five years before was considered fit for service. There's this frantic rush to build bigger and better And falling behind, even just a little, meant putting national survival at risk. I mean, the fate of the world might rest in the hands of your scientists and weapons designers. And of course, what is is it all for? I mean, what is the the guiding principle for foreign policy during this this Truman uh, administration? Uh, There is a guy by the name of George Kennan. he sort of formulates this doctrine of uh, containment in regards to communism. Uh, he'd worked in the Soviet Union um, for many years, and he came to believe that communism had been sort of forced on that society. And in time, it would die on its own. Historian uh, John Lewis Gaddis is going to write, quote, Moscow's intransigence, Kennan insisted, resulted from nothing the West had done. Instead, it reflected the internal necessities of the Stalinist regime. And nothing the West could do within the foreseeable future would alter the fact. Soviet leaders had to treat the outside world as hostile because this provided the only excuse for the dictatorship without which they did not know how to rule. For cruelties they did not dare to inflict, for sacrifices they felt bound to demand. To expect concessions to be reciprocated was naive. There would be no change in the Soviet Union strategy until it encountered sufficiently long string of failures to convince some future Kremlin leader 
uh, Kennan held out little hope that Stalin would ever see this, that this nation's behavior was not advancing its interests. War would not be necessary to produce this result. What would be needed, as Kennan put it in a published version of his argument the following year, was a long-term, patient, but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies, end quote. So Truman is trying to draw a line in the sand, I guess you could say. Um, there's going to be something called the Truman Doctrine. Uh, it, it's a policy of defending democracies around the world from the spread of communism. Um, and this idea is going to be taken up by our next president, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, Looking back, Truman's success had been mixed. I mean, the Soviets had been held at bay in Europe, of course, but then, you know, look what happens in Korea and then China. The, that did not work out. So when Truman finally left office in uh, 1952, he was not popular. Uh, he could have run again, but uh, that just simply was not workable at the time. Uh, you have the Korean War, which is still going. Uh, you have the loss of China. There's a ballooning budget deficit, and they all just dogged him. Dwight Eisenhower, in contrast, seemed a very logical choice as replacement. Um, he was a lifelong military man, almost. I mean, going all the way back. Um, he's the overall commander of U.S. forces in Europe during World War II. I mean, he's the guy in charge of D-Day. Uh, I mean, just... He's the commander of NATO in Europe. Uh, politically, he's a moderate. Um, I mean, he could have easily run as a Democrat if he wanted to. Um, unlike Truman, he knew what he wanted to do in the area of nuclear weapons development. Um, it would be under Eisenhower's term that the Cold War would really kick into gear and the arms race would go into overdrive. Uh Eisenhower is going to take a much more aggressive stance against communism, and he will be unafraid to walk right up to the edge of an overall nuclear war, but not quite go over. Um, in our next episode, we will watch as both the U.S. and our Soviet opponents uh, grow more intransigent towards each other. Stalin will die, and a new, some would say erratic, uh, possibly dangerous leader with a penchant for risk-taking takes over in the Kremlin. The next decade will provide some of the most dangerous moments in the history of the world. All that and more next time on Savage Continent.